This episode is powered by TrackMan Golf. This podcast is also proudly brought to you by Aerotech Golf Shafts. With more Pro Tour wins than any other graphite iron shaft in history, steel fiber golf shafts by Aerotech Golf are a true game changer. Aerotech's innovative designs and unique material engineering help players sharpen their game while reducing fatigue and injury. This podcast is also brought to you by Super Speed Golf. Would you like to hit the ball 20 yards farther? With the Super Speed Golf training system, this can become a reality. Super Speed uses the scientifically proven methods of overspeed training to help increase how fast your body can move during your swing. This works with a set of three specifically weighted clubs used only three times per week, 10 minutes a session, following online training protocols. Join over 700 tour pros by getting your set at superspeedgolf.com. Use the code SHKEEN, S-H-K-E-E-N, to receive 10% off your order. What's up, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of the How's My Hand Path podcast. I'm your host, Brandon Akjavani, and this week we are very excited to mention who's joined us on the podcast for our interview. He was ranked top 100 teachers by Golf.com, 50 best teachers by Golf Digest, and the 2020 PGA National Teacher and Coach of the Year. He is one of the great minds in golf instruction and very good friends with Shaheen, Mark Blackburn. He was gracious enough to give us an hour of his time and uh, he and Shaheen sat down and discussed so many different topics from the golf swing to how he got into the sport. So sit back, relax and enjoy this interview. All right, folks. So um, we have Mr. Mark Blackburn here. First of all, I want to start this off by congratulating you on winning the uh, T-shirt of the year award. Um, you know, when there is one person in the entire country winning this award, this is not like a best young teachers list where it feels like half the country, unfortunately, is getting nominated. Uh, I mean, I have to imagine that that was a super huge recognition and honor on your end and something that you're super proud of just kind of shows the hard work and the players you work with. Yeah, definitely. I mean, obviously, it's one of those things. I, I think if you look at the award, it's a little bit one of those things is if you've it's looking at the body of work over a period of time. So if you look at the guys who won it before uh, me, the last couple of years, you had um, Kirky and then you had Seek and they've obviously both quite a bit older than me and they've been teaching a long, long time. So I think you either have a, a big body of work or you do some stuff that's really amazing. Cam won it. Obviously Jordan was arguably the best player in the world for that period of time. So, and then Mike Adams has had a, a huge influence on, on the golfing world. So I look at it as people are acknowledging the, Hey, that you obviously do some good things that you're a rounded coach. Um, obviously I have a big Academy here and a team and I'm really passionate about my coaching tree and the folks that work for me. And then obviously you've got some sort of speaking and presenting around the world involved with it, probably a little bit education and then obviously you've got the, the authenticity part of it with the tour coaching and the elite players you work with. So it's kind of cool. Yeah, it's a big honor. There's a lot of people that have gone into it. As they say, it takes a village. So I would be lying if I said it was all me. There are lots of people. My wife's obviously a huge rock to me. She's been very, very instrumental. When we first got together, we had no money and I lived in a car barn. So uh, she was definitely supporting me for a long time. So it's one of those things where um, lots of people have been involved with it. I've had lots of different influences no one mentor to me. I'm, I'm a bit of a mutt, really. I've got a lot of different influences. So, uh, yeah, lots of people are involved with it. I might be the one with the plaque when I actually get it. 
because of COVID, I don't think I get it until November 21, which is interesting. Wow. Um, but yeah, but um, it's all good. No, so it's, it's good. Um, I do. I tell everybody though, the accolades and the awards don't mean that you're a good teacher. It just means you have good students. So there you go. I mean, at the end of the day, you know, you can provide all the information in the world. If people aren't listening to you and not getting better, you know, either you got to change what you're doing or they have to practice a little harder. I guess it's kind of on both. Right. So I think it takes both sides, you know, yeah, it takes a good player, but you're the one providing the info. So I'm still going to give you credit for that one. Um, Before you kind of mentioned that you don't have a lot of, or like a one specific mentor Uh, before I even get into the coaching side, I always ask every high level coach like you, um, you know, how you got started in the game. Did you have any aspirations of going pro when you were younger or did you kind of immediately jump into the coaching world? before anything no so i okay so i'm originally from england the uk lots of people just surrey just south of london basically about 10 miles from uh, the center of london so people always think i'm australian or south african but i've lived in the south since 1993 i came to college with aspirations to play professionally college scholarship i ended up graduating from southern mississippi in hattiesburg and then i played for a few years on the hooters tour had some successes. I was kind of inconsistent um, and ended up getting a wrist injury. I was actually in the UK uh, at the course I grew up on and I hit a shot playing with one of my uh, best friends who happened to be a college roommate of mine in Mississippi. And uh, I essentially kind of partially tore these tendons, the top here uh, of my wrist. I couldn't really do anything. And I was living in Alabama because that's where one of my sponsors was from. And I was at a small course in the middle of nowhere called Gunners Landing on um, Lake Gunnersville. It was about 700 miles of shoreline, really pretty, North Alabama, foothills of the Appalachians. And I essentially was, okay, I got to do something while I'm rehabbing this to get ready to play. And I'd been kind of teaching anyway. My degree in school is exercise science and coaching. So that's my background. So that kind of will play into things later down the road. Mm-hmm. Um, but essentially teaching was something I'd always kind of been into and done and tinkered around in college, mess around with folks on the golf team. And so it was one of those things. It kind of was an easy progression and I needed to make some money. So I was kind of teaching. And then what happened was I really resented folding sweaters and running a cash register. So 30 minute golf lessons turned into three hour golf lessons for the same person, but that meant I spent less time inside So I was refining my craft, but it was also a way where I could stay outside. And then I actually, people see me out there. I just kind of got busier and busier. And I literally had a video camera and I taught on this sort of AstroTurf platform on a driving range that was straight downhill. So when people say, oh, you have to have a nice facility. No, you don't. Um, It was not a great facility, but it was a great environment. And I had lots and lots of people. So I taught lots of lessons to bad players. I had lots of eyeballs on golfers early. And then once my wrist was better, I went back to playing, played for about another, I would say through the end of uh, sort of late 99. And then I basically got to the situation where the guy who was sponsoring me, one of my dear friends, the owner of that golf course, he said, look, said, uh, you play well, but not well enough. He goes, but you're good at this teaching. He said, I'm totally willing to help and sort of, fund you if that's something you want to do I think you should probably get your class a from the pga because at least it will give you an opening into some other doors um and why don't we try and build a teaching center on this downhill driving range so we did and that was kind of my start 
And I kind of from there just became as much as I was into practicing and playing, I was into the teaching too. So I'd go see lots of different teachers. I'd go take lessons. I'd try and work on it myself. I'd then give that information to other people. And I just kind of totally absorbed myself in that for probably a three or four year period, um, traveling all over, teaching anybody and everybody. And there was a couple of folks who were sort of in my peer group at the time who were younger coaches too. And so we all kind of did things together. One of my college roommates, VJ Trolio, who's a great teacher in Mississippi, he was kind of, he'd stopped playing and he got into the teaching before me about a year or so. And so once I kind of gradually got into it, we kind of were together in the golfing machine, Mac O'Grady, and we kind of went through all those things. And then, then I kind of branched off and saw different instructors, but it was always based on, I approached everything from a playing perspective. Did something work? Could you hit good shots? Could you score? And I played in a lot of the section events in our area. And so that helped because that I was a good player that gave me a lot of credibility with the sort of pros that are already there. And so that, then those were folks that were influential and sending me to different places and giving me nuggets. And so it's one of those things I really kind of had the benefit of, I approached it from a playing perspective. Did it work? Could I do it? I was able to throw it out. And then what were things that allowed you to shoot lower scores and play well? And I think that was the, the key to it was trying to convince people that, listen, it wasn't, this is going back 20 years, right? It wasn't about just what your golf swing looked like. It was about how you played and what you did. And then I was fortunate. One of my best friends, best man in my wedding, DJ Nelson, who was caddying for Heath Slocum in 2004, Heath was struggling. And uh, a long story short, I ended up helping Heath in early 05. And he went on and that was kind of my golden ticket, right? He started, play, he did, we were first week, I think it was May, New Orleans, maybe 05. And I'd seen him a few days before, then I went to the tournament. And then he did miss the cut there, but it was a little bit better. And then he didn't miss another cut the rest of the year. I think he finished top 40 on the money list. He won the Farm Bureau Classic. And then that was kind of it. I was away, right? Like, And then a lot of other players started to come to see me in the middle of nowhere. And that was kind of good because it wasn't the facility. I think a lot of times people are fortunate to be at great facilities and they're going to attract players just because the, re the resources there and the facility's nice. But in my case, that certainly wasn't it. So it was one of those things a bit like some of the things you read in these books where, you know, middle of nowhere coach but people were getting better and again you're only as good as the players that you coach I always say that and I think the really good coaches know how to make a connection in the players that they're going to be good with and they kind of pick them recruit them however you want it I couldn't do that when I started but I think that's what great coaches do now and if you look at the relationships with players and coaches when the chemistry is right um, and the information is pretty good players are generally going to play well but you're always going to have people you don't necessarily get along with but early on, yours truly didn't have that choice. So I was teaching anybody and anybody. And I think that my three or four years early on in the trenches, teaching really shitty players was invaluable. And that was even before we knew a lot of the things that we now know. I think a lot of the things that we now know, I kind of may have organically found out, but didn't know what I was doing. And so um, some of the players that I worked with, obviously they played well and I'd see things and then try and figure out why that worked. And then obviously all we really had was video. And then I had a big break, I guess, in 2008. No, sorry, 2007. Um, 
I teach a lot of regional college teams and where, where I am to give some geography to that North Alabama area, you're close to Nashville, Chattanooga, Atlanta, Birmingham. So it's, it's fairly easy to get to. Um, and so I had been teaching some of the kids at UTC Chattanooga and it just so happened that Robert Carlson, um, European tour player, his caddy, Gareth Lord, went to school at UTC Chattanooga. And so I was at the, uh, I believe, the 07 PGA at uh, Southern Hills, which is so hot. It was ridiculous. Um, it was awful. We were all eating Pedialyte um, ice lollies. It was so, so hot, right? And Robert Carlson had asked me, I get this phone call, weird number. Hey, this is Robert Carlson. Could you come help me? Blah, blah, blah. So I end up helping Robert. And then we go on an 11-year run and he gets the number six in the world. And in 2008, he played in the final group just about every major and didn't win one, but finished top six, I think, in all of them and got to number six in the world. So, and that was a great experience. That was in the Tiger era. I was there when Tiger chipped in at Torrey Pines. He was playing with him on that Saturday. So I watched that whole round. So it was one of those things, everything rolled into another relationship, but it all really started from the middle of nowhere and just having a real passion to try and learn and discover. And then obviously along the way, my successes in with tour players allowed me to fund technology, which allowed me to become a better teacher um, and just mess things up and then learn from that and then move on. And then obviously with the introduction really of golf science and some of the, the folks that have done a lot of that in golf, that's been huge because now we've got a lot more objectivity to what we're doing and understanding. And so I have really close relationships with the likes of Sasha McKenzie, Rob Neal, you know, Mike Duffy and those guys just, you know, trying to understand what happens and then in the why, and then our job as coaches, you and I is to go out and dumb it down and allow people to play better golf. And so that's kind of the cliff notes, but really that's it. Like it's just been, one success has led to another one has led to another one. But it, if you go back, it's, you know, been a 25, 30 year process. And I think that that's the part that um, you kind of miss a lot of times. It's like the iceberg analogy. You see the top, but you don't see what's underneath. And I think yeah. I would say a lot of the, a lot of the success, people only see you teaching tour players, but I think a lot of the success really comes from cutting your teeth with bad golfers and being able to fix slices and hooks and getting it done really, really quickly with people that aren't athletic and aren't competent because essentially you're having to control this and the club face and the arm structure and what happens. And then you kind of work the other side of the spectrum with the better players. You're trying to accomplish a lot of that often, but they don't want to touch this. So now you're trying to work the pivot and the engine side of it. So I think the great thing about uh, club golfers and teaching here with our academy, we teach everyone from beginners to the, the best players in the world, the whole continuum is that it's like a petri dish right it's like your own little lab where you can do things and you can have ideas and we have all the technology here force plates motion capture like pretty much everything that you have here is the reason i don't have a really really kick-ass mtv cribs backyard because it's all in my teaching center down the street um so much to my wife's dismay but the good news is that does generate revenue um so <laughs> It's one of those things I, I, you know, how I got my start. I've had so many big influences. I do think like early on my golf machine influence, there's folks like VJ Trollio was massive. One of my really close friends now, the likes of Rob Neal, folks like Brian Manzella, Ron Green was huge to me. It was Lynn Blake. There was a guy called Alex Sloan as one of the original guys who went to see Homer Kelly. Like he lived, happened to live in North Alabama, 
he was about 78 years old when I first met him and he's since passed away. But early on, I had that. And then when I kind of went to the golf machine for away from that a little bit towards Mac, I already had a massive background. I was a GSEM. So when I went into Mac stuff, I could take the good of Mac and kind of put away all the nonsense that was not necessarily accurate. It was his interpretation of the golf machine, but that was really, really helpful. And I tell everyone, all that information was really useful, especially at controlling what the club does and the alignments and those other pieces. So I get bashed a lot. Yes, it, by modern standards, it's not really that accurate, but I did have a lot of successes. And as Chuck Cook says, he's made millions out of that yellow book. I made a lot of money from coaching from that. So I, I think that was a really healthy background because it was a little bit different to some of what's out there. And it was very much in line with, there wasn't one way to do it. There was lots of ways to do it. And that kind of was a great transcending into when I worked with Robert Colson, I went to TPI with him in 2007. And that was the first time I'd already seen Dave and Greg and I'd done some of their certifications, but that was the first time I'd seen it come to light. And then that, exercise science and coaching degree I had, I alluded to that all of a sudden came full circle. And it was like, okay, those anatomy classes, understanding, you know, how joints work, understanding how do you generate power, how do muscles work, different types of loading, contractions, yada, yada, yada. All of a sudden it was like, okay, it kind of came to life. And I would say now full gamut, I'm very agnostic. I assess movement, screen everybody on the front end just to see what they do. And then my goal is to try and build a golf swing around physically what that person can do, the lens that they play golf with, whether they draw or fade it, high, low, medium. And then I'd pride myself on that. My guys on tour don't swing the same over the period of time. Nobody looks like they're swinging the same. I try and build it on what they do. And I think you're trying to help players play well. So that's kind of my elevator pitch, which has gone on. We've gone a lot of flaws with that, but there you go. Hopefully that's kind of a helpful start. Well, I have so many follow-up questions. I don't even know where to begin with all this. Um, I think <laughs> that, first of all, coming from a playing background, I guess it, it really opened you up to not becoming a swing coach when you started teaching. It seems like when you started coaching players that you weren't looking at them and going, hey, your swing needs to look this way or you're kind of screwed. You know, it very much seems like you were trying to find the appropriate feels to match the player to kind of get them to do something because it seems like you were very much that type of player as well, thinking a little more scoring and a little more, um, I guess, about the overall game as opposed to what it looked like just on camera. Um, correct me if I'm wrong. That seems like, what, I, from my understanding, how it kind of started yeah. with you. Because I And I would say why it started that way, because when I was playing mini tours and I played the Hooters tour when Chad Campbell was making PGA tour money on the Hooters tour because he was winning everything, right? Oh, I, I've and seen I did, those standings, by the way. It's ridiculous how, how he was winning everything. So when I did go, I did coach Chad for a few years too. We're good friends after the fact. But the reality was I spent a lot of time on the driving range with trinkets and like doing different things essentially working on my game because I probably didn't make as many cuts as I should have done, but I did stupid stuff. Like my barometer of whether I was swinging well was a bladed Mizuno two iron. And could I hit shots flush out the middle of the club while trying to lean the shaft and keep my dynamic loft down? Cause I was a machiner thinking that I should do that. Well, obviously we both know that these shots were about this high And they didn't look like Tiger Woods' towering ones. So, but low I low at, low at, at no spin is not a good combo. 
So it was one of those things where that was kind of when I got into the teaching, I was like, well, that wasn't helping me score. And I kind of did this the wrong way. So whilst I would say I was a technical, technical and mechanical stuff was my MO, I was like, well, the goal is, can you hit nine, the nine shots on call? If your game, you can hit the shots, then it's pretty good. And some people would only be able to hit, let's say, four out of the nine. Or some people wouldn't be able to hit the whole other side of them. But it would be like, okay, well, they can still play really well. So I think you're right. My experiences molded, like everybody, how I tried to go about it. And I would say I still try and go about it that way. And I know that a lot of times people will make observation about players. And as coaches, we, you know, I tell people on the PGA Tour, you've really got three types of coaches. You've got technical, mechanical coaches. You've got people that are very philosophical, like kind of lifey coachy, like get you going. And you've got people that are hybrid in between. I'd say I'm probably in between. So from that, you're all often going to see people who are going to look at a goal swing and go, why does that person do that? Why haven't you changed that? So a lot of people go to me, well, Ches Reevy moves into the ball and he loses his posture. Why wouldn't you change that? Because he hits like one yard full left draws and that kind of helps him. And it's like that works for him. I'm more about how do I help him believe in himself and hit more shots and make more hole in ones. I think he's had, as of last week, he's had 27. So it's one of those things where I'm looking at that for, uh, that experience of me getting caught up in the minutiae of the technical that detracted from me ever being the player I could have been. So when I went into coaching, I didn't want other people to fall into that trap and they do. So I tried to approach it to your point. How do you score? How do you shoot the lowest scores possible? And I think that, you know, the way we go about it, we start out with technique, but at the end of the day, as a coach, you want to get very score centric on this end. I call it where it's all about how, how do you shoot the lowest numbers possible? And it's a bit like a pot of gumbo. There's loads of different ways to do that. And everybody's different. My job is to try and help bring that out of somebody. So I think you're right. Long, long answer to what you said, but I wanted to clarify kind of why yeah, of that course. is. And the more, the more you can it. explain it in detail, the better people will understand where you're coming from. So yeah, I appreciate that. I think that's, in, I think that perspective is important. So people understand it. And I think if you've coached players at levels and had success, you obviously have a way you do things, your process, if you like. Um, and there's a reason for it. And I always try and stress that, that at the end of the day, that scoring average and where that person finishes on the money list or where they are on the AGAJ events or where they are in the college and where they are on the wagger is way more important to me than what the golf swing looks like. Right. Okay. So I want to jump into a little further ahead. Now you finally get this golden ticket with Heath Slocum and having this, crazy hot year after struggling when he comes to you did you ever have like a holy shit moment like were you confident right from the get-go when you were helping him and you were in the in the show let's call it in quotations or were you kind of nervous at first that like you had some self-doubt because i would imagine you're obviously much more knowledgeable now you're more experienced you obviously i mean everybody grows confidence with experience and with results of their players what was that like starting out like were you did you get there and you said you're following tigers around let's say with robert you know, were you looking at that going and be like, how the hell am I here from a cart barn, as you called it? Or were you kind of like from the onset, just kind of looking forward? No, I, I so I would say I was young and naive and probably didn't know enough to, to be overly concerned. And now I did know like 
when I first went to New Orleans with Heath, I took a bunch of tech down there, video, laptop, cameras, and I'm probably the only person on the range with it at the time, but I was kind of oblivious. I was like, okay, I'm here to do a job and help this guy. I got to do it the way I know how to do it. Um, and I've always been probably pretty comfortable in doing things my way. Like, I don't care what other people think. I really like in terms of sometimes I can be told that, Hey, you can be a little blunt or you're a little honest. I just call as it is like there's people who always try and look at the positive and stuff, tell people they do stuff well, but I'm going to be honest with people. And I think early on, I didn't know any other way other than that. All I could do was focus on the players I had. Obviously that whole tiger thing at the time when we were in 08 and when Robert was playing really well, I was like, wow, this is kind of interesting. I remember the old driving range at Augusta, um, back in 08, my father and one of our family best friends had come over and I was on the old range and it was way more intimate. We were way closer. I was just Robert and I, the only ones out there. And my dad is up there and, it, it, you know, he made a comment. He goes, well, we've come a long way from Betchworth Park and a cart barn, haven't we? So things like that, I kind of let you, they, they I thought, you oh, well, and think, I guess. Yeah. But at the time, I've always been someone that's never been satisfied. I'm always trying to move forwards. Like even now, like I'm like, I still don't think I'm doing a good enough job with the way I do things. I'm trying to learn more. I'm trying to get better. So I've always been looking forwards. And I guess sometimes you don't smell the roses along the way. Um, and I run 90 to nothing, right? Right now I'm on a, so you can, you know, I'm on a broke foot um, yeah. with a screw, with a screw in it. But I worked for three weeks on a broke foot trying to take care of my guys before Christmas, before I knew I was going to have to have this surgery. So now I'm working remotely, but I've always been going forwards, I guess. So at the time, I've never really thought of it. And I've been kind of oblivious to what everyone else thinks. I've been like, okay, I'm trying to do it the best way I can do. And I can only be Mark Blackburn. Me trying to be somebody else doesn't do me any good. And I know that I'm pretty pragmatic, try and keep, take complicated things and make it simple. Some people really would need that. For the players that need that, I'm great. If you're someone that needs a lot of philosophical stuff and life, life coaching, I do a little bit of it, but if you need a massive amount of that, I am not the guy. So I just early on figured, okay, this is how I do it. This is the way I'm going about it. How do I get this person to be more effective? And I guess to a, that's probably to a fault because I don't socialize enough as you probably should on tour with other coaches. I've tried to be much better about that latterly. But early on, I was there to do a job and I felt like anytime I wasn't into my players and doing what I'm doing, I detracted from what I was up to. So I think to answer your question, I just, I didn't know any different. I was ignorant and naive to it. So I just got on with it. And I think that was a big benefit because it didn't intimidate me and it didn't freak me out. I was enjoying it because it was the heyday of golf, Tiger, blah, you know, the, the, if you look at what you've seen, it was some really cool stuff. And it, I would be like, wow, I can't believe I'm like standing right next to this golfer. But at the same time, it quickly was like, oh, it's just another golfer. And once you know that they all put their pants on the same and they're just as silly as you are, it's like, okay, it's, it is what it is. But I think that that's kind of how I approached it. And now looking back, I'm like, God, I was an idiot, but there you go. It's again, I had the right information at the right time and the player played well. That was really, I was very, very fortunate. Does that make sense? So, yeah, of course. I mean, at the end of the day, there's some timing elements to that as well, right? Which I guess is the same for anybody who's successful. Um, it sounds like you developed 
a really strong comfort level with your identity of your coaching style. Um, you know, has that only been the case in recent years that like, you know, you mentioned you're not so much of a massive heavy influence on the philosophy side of things to your coaching, or do you find that just over time you found what works with you and it's always kind of gradually changing every year? Yeah. So I think that's, I think you want to evolve as a coach, right? So if you look at John Wooden and you look at some of those things, I look at great coaches and then what do they do? And you encompass a lot of things. So I'm very into like the likes of Sabin, Alex Ferguson in soccer, um, Bill Belichick. Also, we have to talk like, about premiership, uh, the Premier League afterwards. But anyways, we'll leave that to later. <laughs> okay. My team's got a big game against Man United on Sunday. So I'm hoping that um, they win. United just went top. But Liverpool's in a bad run of form at the moment and we've got a lot of injuries. But anyway, <laughs> hopefully Klopp can adapt. So I would say, yes, you want to evolve. Like I've been involved on some cool like coaching trips and – um, sort of, if you like, groups of people going together and, and doing different things so that, that you can learn and coaches from all types of different sports. And that's really fascinating to me. So I think you do evolve, but I do think you need to really own your own identity and what you're good at and understand that you're trying to change. I'd tell everyone, you've got to be a comedian. You've got to adapt to the player, but you also have a way that you go about doing things. And so often, like, I think as coaches, I've used storytelling analogies and a little philosophical stuff. Sometimes you have to use that in the moment to try and get somebody to perform and play well. But I've always looked at it as I don't want that to be, if you like, my body of work, because then you're detracting from if you have to rely on that all the time, then there's obviously something in the middle that's not working very well, very rarely. And I think you'd agree if there's a technical competency, do you see there being a massive lack of confidence? It just doesn't right. really run to get together, right? So I've always like get somebody to, it's a bit like a, a comp, I look at players regardless of skill level. So let me preface this. Mm -hmm. You're a bit like an underperforming stock. I'm going in and I try and apply a critical thinking model of, okay, where are they underperforming? Which department struggling? As in departments would be pieces of the game. How right. do I go in and cl clean that up to make that perform better so that contributes to the overall performance of the player? And regardless of level, that's where statistics are really useful, movement assessments, watching the video, getting on the golf course, blah, 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 blah. That's kind of, that's to me the, the way I've, I kind of look at it. So you just basically don't want the substance of your teaching to be philosophical because if there is technical proficiency, it'll, it'll support it stronger than let's say other areas. Yeah. And I think that you need the, you need to be the, the coaching and those other pieces are almost like the icing on the cake. They come when you've got those other pieces. And so I'd say latterly, I spend a lot of time reading different books. I mean, on my library in here is full of books that are way more on the self-help development, growth, mindset, motor learning, those other pieces, because once you've got the foundational, now you've got to train it, you've got to nurture it, you've got to cultivate that environment. Like most of the work I do or have done this week with my players has been about 25% to 20% ahead of Palm Springs and Hawaii um, on the technical front. And it's a lot more on the external shot shaping, creating, you know, the routine, the external cues, the nine ball flights, going through that variable practice. 
So again, I, I would lean towards that, but that becomes a lot easier to me once they have the ability to do it. And the other thing too, is you've got to remember we're in the world of experts now. Most of the teams I coach on with a PGA tour, I have a sports psychologist. Yes, to a degree, we're all psychologists, but I don't have a PhD. Yeah, they're, they're a, specialists he, he, at what they do, you know? Correct. And so it's one of those things. It, you, you can motivate the player. You can pull their strings. You can do blah, blah, blah. But again, I just, I, I found that I know that I'm pretty good at that part of it. Getting people, I would say I'm really good at results. People are struggling. I've had where I'm not successful, but people are struggling. I've kind of got a, some experience of getting people back on the track, the likes of Mike Weir, right? So guys that have really struggled. Well, you did that with Ches Reed too. Struggle. I mean, he had an amazing year last year. Yeah. Yeah. So again, and, and I think that's one of those things where, but I would say players that have been struggling when I've got them, like, so Justin Parsons did an amazing job with Harris English. When I had Harris, Harris, we had one good finish at Torrey Pines and then the rest of it was really bad. Like it, it, it wasn't good. I didn't do a great job with that. Now, there was a lot of circumstance around that. But again, you have to acknowledge it. Like, and, But that's a great learning opportunity too as a coach. So, you I mean, you learn more from you what you're not good at. But again, I would say as a whole, I'm pretty good at taking people when it's not very good and getting them back on track and giving them a process and simplifying it. And it, it's pragmatic. It's not really any nonsense. It's not overly new age, flashy bullshit. It's yeah. like, okay, here's the principles here. How are we going to go about it? I'm a Belichick or a Sabin or a Bill Parcells. Do you know what I mean? I'm not a Pete Carroll. Does that make sense? I mean, yeah, I'm trying to give analogies that, that people would understand. And mm -hmm. that doesn't mean that Pete Carroll is not amazing. But I just, me trying to be like that isn't going to be who I am, right? I'm English. I'm a little sarcastic. I'm, gonna, I'm a little <laughs> cynical, blah, 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 right? You're skeptical. You've got to go with those things that, that some of that we are who we are and you've got to embrace it. Now, you're trying to improve the areas you're not great on. But again, why be something you're not? Because you're never going to be authentic and you're never going to be good. So that's, that's, the, that's my advice to anybody and me just being honest. And I look at high performers across every endeavor. That's, you, you got to love yourself first. And when I mean that, I don't mean that as in, oh, I love my, I mean, I got to embrace who I am. That's not meant as a narcissistic way. That's just meant no, as I, a, okay, that's me like as the coach. And if I don't, try and understand that then i'm really going to struggle and how on earth am i going to get somebody to believe in me and be confident in what i'm telling them if i don't understand and embrace kind of how i'm at and i'm always trying to develop myself i'm always trying to be better i can be way better um for sure i got a lot of faults but i'm like pretty good at helping golfers play well and coach them and so it's trying to figure out ways to better help the players i help well, I think it immediately speaks to your confidence when the first thing you tell me is that, you know, you had Harris English and he did struggle and you couldn't get him to where he wanted to get. And you're not letting your ego get in the way of that. And you're openly admitting that, hey, you know, our strategy or whatever, everything that entailed that relationship clearly wasn't as successful as you would have liked it. But yet that doesn't mean that you're not going to be able to achieve that with clearly all the other players that you've proven that you have. And I feel like a lot of coaches nowadays are, are, at least from my experience of being on social media and seeing all these people everywhere, they're really pumping their own kind of, you know, they're pumping themselves up a lot, but very rarely will you see a coach openly kind of admit like, hey, 
it didn't fucking work or for whatever reason, something wasn't meshing together. And I, and I think that it doesn't come off as narcissistic. I think if anything, it comes across as just like your confidence in yourself as a coach. Yeah. And listen, we don't have all the answers to, I mean, Joe Mayo is a friend of mine. I love the guy and some of his social media posts are just great. And as he said, I tell everybody we're, and I've been saying this for years, we're practicing golf instruction, just like they're practicing medicine. There's a, there's a, in that, there's a lot said, as in, we aren't always right. We don't have all the answers. We're just doing the best we can today. I certainly would rather get a golf lesson today than I would have done 30 years ago. And I certainly would rather go get surgery, which I just have had now than I would 30 years ago too. So we're all evolving. We don't have all the answers. We're making, and critical thinking is the best guest estimate. Take all the information. Let me make the best guess possible. And guesses are loosely used, but you know what I mean? There's no certainty. The only certainty is death and taxes, right? So yeah. the reality is you, you've got to try and you're trying to wager and stack the odds in your favor. Like this, one of those things where I think that's all you're trying to do. And as a coach, you want to learn and, and situations where you're not successful. Why wasn't I? So I get a, when I struggle with a player and I've had players leave and then they come back and then they, whatever. I always take a, a big piece of paper and my good buddy, Brett McCabe had me do this, get a glass of wine or your drink of choice and write down all the things you did well. And then all the things you struggled with. And I just kind of, if you like put everything on a piece of paper so that you can actually work through it and use it as a learning opportunity is what was successful and what wasn't. Why did I do this? Why did I do that? And invariably I'll be honest. I think when you struggle a lot of times, those things are just perhaps it wasn't what you were saying. It was as much the messaging and the way you packaged it as it was the info. Right. And so again, right. look at great, great coaches. They're great communicators. They, they, the way that they deliver it. People say lots of things about Butch Harmon, but the guy's got a track record. Yes. He's working with thoroughbreds, but invariably his communication's great. Yes. He's had some unsuccessful relationships, but again, at a large time, He's good at communicating. Players are good at communicating and are coaches. And I think that's really important to be able to kind of do that as a coach. And to me, that's all I'm trying to do. I'm trying to learn from every situation. How can I be better? The good benefit of teaching club golfers is when I mess it up, I'm not messing up their career. And there's a really good chance that I can rectify it again later down the road. Those are great learning opportunities. And I think if you just teach the best players, you don't have that ability to kind of, if you like, look at, okay, wait a minute. What if I tried it this way? Because you, you can't do that. You don't really get second chances with tour players, as, as you know. Yeah. Um, so I kind of want to talk about the differences. First of all, I will say in Butch's defense, kind of to topple on top of what you said you know yeah he's had a lot of really good players i get it but it's really easy to take a great player and ruin their fucking career so you know just because he got the great player doesn't mean that he's going to keep that player great you know it requires clearly his skill level as a coach and like you said his track record is as, as good as, as good as anyone in the history of the game um you know a lot of people speak to what he used to teach maybe 20 years ago well you kind of just mentioned it you'd rather get surgery now than 20 years ago he did the best he can with the info he had back then so um you know i do occasionally read negative comments about his instruction online but at the end of the day he's still one of the best coaches of all time and i think we should all acknowledge that um 
I wanted to uh, speak about kind of the differences between tour players and, and everyday golfers. You know, you mentioned your first couple of years, you were teaching a lot of really shitty golfers. Uh, I kind of did the same. You know, I, I, there's nothing like being put kind of in the stadium, forcing you to be under that, you know, that kind of spotlight, even if it's with a bad player at first, I think you can gain a lot from that. Um, you know, what would you say are the biggest differences? Like, are you communicating information differently besides kind of the lexicon that you're using from one player to another, you know, how do you go about that kind of relationship differently with, let's say somebody who comes into your Academy, who's a club golfer trying to shoot 80 versus let's say working with Chez or working with, um, Charlie Hoffman or any of the other guys that you, you know, you've worked with in the past. So I think, okay, so the first thing, one of my really good buddies, big influence of mine, smart English guy called John Tattersall, as he always says, the biggest difference is time changes. With a time, is a, it's very different. As in tour players, there isn't much time. They have a really good BS detector. And if you can't get the golf ball to do what they want it to do very quickly, you lose their attention. You're out, yeah you're out, right? So time shrinks. Club golfers, not always that athletic, not always that talented, not always that comfortable. So all of a sudden time does this. So it changes. So the task that you're trying to accomplish is the same, which is the net of everything is get the golf ball, low scores and get the golf ball to do what they wanted to do, right? At the end of the day, that's it. Can Mm -hmm. they control what the golf ball does to ensure they shoot lower scores, whether it's chipping, pitching, bunker shots, iron game, driving, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. So the average golfer is oft, often quite intimidated. They're a little bit, you're trying to, they're apprehensive and tour players are apprehensive. Tour players don't want to change, but they do want to change. Club golfers <laughs> are scared to change because they don't know how to change that's, and they're intimidated a lot of time by instruction. That's right? the most so, accurate statement you've ever said about tour players, by the way. Yeah. So, so, <laughs> How, definition of insanity is to keep doing the same thing and expect a different result, but people want to change without changing. You just, you, you can't do it. Right? right. So it's how do you, how do you give tour players? This is the big one. I think that coaches and people need to understand how do I give the least invasive adjustment that gives the biggest bang for the buck? That's it. That's it. Right. Like, so Look at the low-hanging fruit. So I, I look at things very linearly when I look at a golf swing. I look at the big picture, and then I look at, okay, what's the setup? Okay, grip, posture, alignment, tilts, all those things, that, the fundamentals. Then I start to look at the backswing. Okay, how do they move in the backswing? How does the pivot move? How does the arm structure? How do the wrists? How do they use their, their body, their ground reaction forces, yada, yada, yada. Then what happens in transition with those pieces? Then in the downswing and the delivery, yada, yada, yada. So I'm always trying to, and I know that we share a similar thing here. The more I can do before that club changes direction to influence the issue that they currently have, it's going to be least invasive. As soon as I get to where I'm in the downswing and that thing's moving really fast and good players, it moves really fast, it becomes really difficult. Club golfers aren't good enough. You can play with the second half of the golf swing a lot more easily. It is difficult, but you've got some leeway. Tour players, you have to stack the deck in your favor on the front end because if you start messing with the other, now that nervous system is all jacked up and their automaticity goes out the window and it's really problematic. So that's the bigger difference, right? I will be more invasive, will change a lot more with a club golfer because I cannot mess them up. They just want to play good golf and they're coming back 
next week or I'm going to see them playing in, at the club in the week and we're going to work through it. Tour player, I'm trying to help them improve just a little bit so that they can shoot lower scores. And that's the biggest difference. That, that's where that takes some experience and wisdom to know what will work and what won't. And the good thing about messing stuff up is if you've messed stuff up before, you know, oh, oh I am not going to do that again. That's why I think great coaches have a lot of experience because they learn from that and they don't do the same thing twice. They try and avoid it. And, and I think that's the, the, the big difference between amateurs and professionals is you're trying to be as accurate as possible with the least invasive mechanism for a good player, a tour player, biggest bang for the buck. How do you get them to shoot low scores? Club golfer, inherently, you can be more invasive. The consequences aren't nearly as significant. But at the end of the day, they're all golfers and they're all, you're just trying to create a predictable face to path to hit the shot that they want to hot hit on the call. I mean, I think that's also what I've experienced with working with tour players is they don't want you to come in and be like, hey, this has to change. This has to change. This has to change. Your downswing has to change. The guy's going to look at you and be like, fuck off. I'm not taking a lesson from you ever again. <laughs> they want to be like, hey, you know, if you can tinker with my setup by a degree and all of a sudden all my issues are gone, man, I'll take that any day over any fucking big adjustment that you're going to give me. So um, that fully aligns with obviously my experience, although it hasn't been as, as long as yours has. Um, you know, how often... Are you working with a club golfer? And I think it would be good for any like young coach to, to kind of hear your answer on this. But how often are you working with a young golfer, uh, like a shitty golfer of any skill level, where you're trying to do something with them and you're starting to realize that it's kind of not trending in the direction that you were hoping they were going to go when you've had to make some sort of adjustment to that, whether within the same lesson or within the lessons that kind of followed? Because I, I've, I've experienced a lot of coaches come up to me and be like, I'm so afraid once I tell them to work on something that if they're not getting it immediately, that I feel like I need to give them something different immediately or that they're afraid to give them something different because they feel like maybe the player is going to look at them as in like, well, this coach isn't even fucking confident in what he's teaching me, that he's changing up his own instruction, you know, from one day to the next. Have you ever had experiences like that? And how would you kind of approach that? No, for sure. Okay, so the first thing I say is, how you frame everything on the front end is really important. So I try and give people, I use these big whiteboards and I write everything out, give them a framework, but I start with how they move physically. And I go, look, we're all unique individuals. We're going to try to give you the easiest option. The reality is there is a multitude of options. We're just going to go with the one which initially seems the easiest. So understand that if this is difficult for you, there's a fair chance that once you've gone away and worked on it and remotely we've communicated, if you're struggling with it, we may try some new ingredients. It's like a recipe. We have to tweak the recipe. So I preface everything with that, even with a tour player. So now I have the ability to come back with a different ingredient and a different recipe or an adjustment to give them the outcome that they want. So again, it's in an ever-evolving, moving target. But I think if you frame it like that on the front end, you're good. I think where people run into problems, and I think we've gone away from this as an industry, and I think a lot of the young coaches I see now are fantastic. They do a lot of really good job, is that 
we've gone away from a model and you must do this and you need to be here at P1 and P2 and then at P4, the club's got to look like this so that when you come into P6, the club's here and the sweet spot's here. I think we've kind of gone away from that. The, the reality is there's different ways to draw the ball and there's different ways to fade the ball. If you put all the Hall of Famers that fade it on the left and all the drawers on the right, they're going to have commonalities, but they're going to have differences. So it's just framing that on the front end. And I think you've got to embrace it that like, there may always be a better way to do it, but you, you've got to understand or explain to the student coaching is evolving and your body's going to change and your mindset's going to change. So we're, it's never going to be just one way. We're always trying to keep the needle in, in sort of check and we're going to use different mechanisms to do that. And there may be ways that are easier for you and ways that are harder. My job is to help steer the shit. I always use the analogy. It's a bit like Star Wars, right? The students, Luke Skywalker, we're Obi-Wan Kenobi. We're showing them the way. The way is going to change and deviate. But at the end of the day, they're the hero of the story. And I think if you frame it that way on the front end, yes, I understand it's a little bit more of a difficult sort of delivery. You have to be confident enough to do that. And that's why selling is a big part of coaching. You've got to be very convincing. You've got to make somebody feel comfortable those are all skill sets that coaches need to have outside of just the X's and O's. Well, I think what you spoke to that I think resonates the most is number one, you have an idea of what the end result needs to look like in terms of a change, just how you're getting there. Obviously might be a multiple multitude of ways to get there, but you're prepping the player in advance to know that, Hey, if option A doesn't work, don't freak out and go fuck off. Like there's another option that might very well be more suitable for you so the player even if you do change your instruction is not going to jump the gun and freak out and go seek someone else they know that you prepared them in advance for hey this might not be the only way to do it we know what the end goal needs to look like in terms of let's say a ball flight or whatever just how we're going to get there you know you're, you're prepping them for that i guess is is where the the front end that you spoke about comes to 100 percent. and remember i think that's showing you to be a great a great coach and have a lot of strengths because you're not a one trick pony. And I right. think that's the part that people want to find a coach that they like, they can trust has a track record that really does care about the individual and trying to help them. And don't be like pigeonholed into just one solution. There are a multitude of solutions based on a whole host of factors and um, explain that, create that. Like once you've got that culture People will buy into it and people are buying into what you do and the way you do it as much as they are the information. And if they know you care and you've got different solutions to me, that's only a strength that can only help you. I love it, dude. Well, we didn't even get a chance to talk about pressure and stuff like that, but there's so much we can dive into that. I'm going to save you the trouble. I just want to end on one kind of final question of, um, you know, when you started, obviously, it was a long time ago. The instruction world was very different. There wasn't social media. Uh, the information out there was very different. And the way in which you can maybe jump into the coaching side of the industry, you know, the opportunities are a lot bigger now than they were back then. What kind of advice would you give to a younger coach now uh, who's trying to start out and, you know, wants to make it to kind of the level that you've gotten to at this point? So again, back to, there's no substitute for volume. If you really want to be a good teacher, go to a driving range, a top golf, a public facility, a municipal, and teach a lot of people. Like just a lot of practical experience, fixing slices, fixing hooks. And as I said at uh, Ricey's coach camp that we both did, 
at the end of the day, every golfer, regardless of skill level, is one side of the continuum. They're either got too many hook biases or too many slice biases. And the goal is to bring those back into neutral. So and true. every golfer is every golfer is the same in that aspect. Mm-hmm. Doesn't matter if you're Tiger Woods or you're Sam Sneed or Well, you can say Philly Mick, his driver is pretty horrendous right now, but let's just yeah. <laughs> okay. Or, or or Mickelson, whoever it is, right? Yeah. So they're all recipes and ingredients, and you need to understand the different pieces. You will not get better without practical experience. So you can sit in front of this thing all day long. You can look at the stuff that you post, that I post, that Jeff Smith posts, like all of the people that have put great content out there, me and my golf, like guys that put great content. However, that is not the same as doing it yourself. You can have all the ideas in the world, but unless you've got the hands-on practical experience in the trenches of doing it, it does you no good. I'd much rather have somebody that's got not much knowledge that's really good hands-on and can communicate and get people to do things. They're going to have a lot more success than the person that knows a lot, but has no way to apply the information that they have. And so um, I tell all instructors, go spend time with good coaches, watch the, what they do, watch how they go about it. So George Gankers, a friend of mine, his interaction and chemistry with people is fantastic. It's infectious watch what he does. He's churning them out, right? Like you, you got to spend a lot of time doing it to own your information, but then understand and see patterns and trends and tendencies so that you can give information to resolve those solutions, those scenarios very easily. That does not come without doing the hand. I tell everyone you got at some point, these have to get dirty and you have to do the work. There's no just thinking about it. And I think, we all see the problem with this is all we see is greatness, amazingness, everyone's successes. Nobody wants to post the real world of how they got there because it's dirty, it's ugly, and the journey ain't a lot of fun. You have to do a lot of shitty things to get to the top. And when I say that, I don't mean, I just mean like a lot of grudge work, like gritting yeah. out, grinding it, doing it. There's no shortcuts. It's like anything, right? Like back to the iceberg analogy. So, Put the volume in there and embrace it. Enjoy that. And that's a great opportunity. Go spend as much time and observe. I'm telling you, great coaches will let you observe. They'll encourage you. Anyone wants to come see me when I'm here coaching, I'm like, yeah, come hang with us. I'll buy you lunch every day. Come hang out. Like, just you've got to watch what people do and the way they interact and how they do it. And everyone's delivery is really different. So you've got to figure out your mechanism, what you're good at, the way you deliver it. And Again, everything is like a performance. I know that sounds crazy, but us as coaches, we're performing. So do you give every performance, giving you an A? Did you give yourself an A, right? I know Butch has made fun of Claude a few times. I'm pretty good buddies with Claude. But the Harmonson's like, well, Butch is like, well, you gave a terrible lesson. You only gave that guy a C effort. So if you look at good coaches, they're giving a lot of effort, enthusiasm, energy. You've got to figure out how you package that up, how you deliver it everyone's like unique and young, good coaches do good things. You've got to get on with figuring out how you're going to do it, but you won't do that unless you put the hours in to do it and a lot of hard work. And that that's my, there's no substitute for doing it. And everyone's done it. You've got that 10,000 hour rule, which I don't necessarily agree with. Oh, I just say there's a lot of volume of messing stuff up so that you, you know, understand how to do it. And everybody's, you know, 
it's one of those experience just means you've screwed more shit up than somebody else. That's all that means. <laughs> I, I, I love it, dude. I really like that answer a lot. And I think uh, that speaks to your 20 plus years of experience, which got you to the award that I know that you don't want to talk about like to the grandiose <laughs> way that it is. But at the same time, I think it speaks to, um, you know, the fact that you earned it. So, um, dude, that was awesome, man. I, I, I really appreciate you have having you on. I know that you're super busy. So unfortunately it had to take a surgery to the foot to have to get you on the pod, but, uh, man, I love it. Yeah, no, no, anytime. I'd love to come back on anytime you want to talk more about the nerdy tech stuff. Uh, we'll, we'll do that next time, soon. but I think that the real, the real up and coming coaches would learn more from this than us talking nerdy forces and torques for an hour. Oh uh, yeah. Way more. That, I mean, I think that that's the, that's the thing that people need to understand is, is it's not as it's not all cool, good looking stuff. It's like the boring stuff is what pays the bills. It's what, you know, you can generate a really nice revenue and income from. And honestly, teaching the average player is so much fun because they're normal people and the relationships you derive from it are incredible. And you can go home at night and you're not worrying about it. When you coach tour players, just remember, High performance means high stress. Yes, it mean, may mean high pay, but that means there's no time off. Like your phone's going off all the time uh, and dude, you're if, if, you need to be available 24-7. If people saw our phones every day, they'd be like, there's no way they message you this often. I'm like, well, you know, they're, they're also earning us a lot of bank and earning themselves a lot of bank. It's very understandable that they're going to bust our balls as often as they do, and they should, to be honest. Yeah, and, so, and here's the other thing they're going to be a lot more direct and a lot the their mechanism to communication is going to be a little bit more. The tone's going to be very different to your club golfer. And that's the other part. Some people aren't cut out for the stress of it either. So, I agree. I agree with know, that. Yeah. Not for everybody. Some people, no, if you don't like dealing with narcissists and you don't know how to pacify them, then be careful coaching tour players. So, <laughs> good stuff dude good stuff we'll end it on that right there alright buddy I look right. forward to um, catching up with you hopefully later in the year we can grab a drink when you're back stateside and love yeah, to dude, host you here anytime you want let's hope the vaccine fucking rolls out quick enough and I'll be there as soon as I can alright dude uh, be All safe right, if you need anything holler at me keep up the big work see you bud we'll be do, safe. Dude. take care buddy thanks bye Thanks again to all of the wonderful sponsors of our show, Callaway Golf, Trackman, Aerotech Golf Shafts, and Superspeed Golf. And remember, if you want to hit the ball 20 yards farther, all you got to do is head over to superspeedgolf.com and use the code SHKEEN for 10% off your order. That's S-H-K-E-E-N for 10% off your order at superspeedgolf.com.